the, I guess it's election eve, it would be called, huh? Mm -hmm. Sort of last week was Halloween, and <laughs> I know there is some connection between the two. I'm not sure which is better or worse, this year especially. Horrors. Horrors, right. So, I just came back from teaching a weekend at Mount Madonna down near Santa Cruz, uh, and it was kind of an experimental weekend for myself, entitled Living from the Heart. And it was a series of meditations and exercises and sharing and visualizations about working with the heart and connecting one's heart to one's life. And one of the questions that I ask people there uh, was, and we actually did a writing exercise with it, what, when are the times in your life, in the past year or years, where you felt most alive and awake and most connected with your heart? And what was interesting in people writing and giving responses is that one of the most frequent responses was in times of misfortune or in times of someone's sickness or someone died or some grief or other that or some tragedy woke people up and then they really got there in their life. And of course the stories that came from that were very touching and very compelling. And I might ask for you to reflect for a moment when in your own life the past year or several years have you felt really connected with life? Now, a question that it raised in, in hearing the responses and that that was a very common one was, is there some other way to awaken? Is there some other way to bring your heart and your life alive beside having misfortune and tragedy or beside those times when there's upheaval in life? How can we not wait for that time but actually live before death or before illness in the same wakeful way. What motivation brings us to our spiritual life is part of that question. Actually, there are a lot of different motivations that people come with, and they'll change over time. Um, there's a teacher that I studied with in southern Thailand named Ajahn Jamnian. And I've told this story sometime before here, another e a year ago or so. He was a wonderful man. He, uh, he apprenticed at age six or seven to a, a spiritual teacher in the village where he grew up. And his practice for all the years that he grew up was a loving-kindness practice. So he got very good at it. And he was a very loving person. You could feel it. There was a kind of field of warmth around him. Also, he was a very handsome young man. When I knew him, he was a, a teacher, quite well-known. He was still in his, I guess, his earlier mid-30s. Very charismatic and good-looking and, and beautiful and beautiful-feeling. And I went to study with him because he was also quite masterful in working with different samadhi practices. And after being in his monastery for some time, I discovered that a lot of people who were there were there because they'd fallen in love with him. Not just the nuns, the monks, everybody, you know. 
Um, and he was so beautiful and so gracious, and the feeling was so sweet, and they just kind of wanted to be around him, you know, and, and be close to him. And I thought about that, and it seemed something seemed a little off, that they should be there for that reason, rather than wanting to be enlightened or grow or whatever. And I went, and I kind of complained to him. I said, do you realize that a lot of these people are here just because they're in love with you? He said, of course I do. You know, what, do you think I'm stupid? <laughs> I said, well, well, what do you do about that? He said, it doesn't matter what brings them. Whatever brings them is fine. If that's what brings them, we'll still teach them the Dharma. We'll teach them the ways of practice and the laws of the heart and mind. And they can use that to awaken something deeper in themselves. So there'll be lots of motivations. At times, it's curiosity and the intellect. At times, it's the aesthetic of oriental things that one may have touched. Or at times, it's just the beauty of spiritual life or the resonance of some sense of purity in yourself that you wish to nourish or awaken. Sometimes it is suffering or loss or grief. Sometimes it's just the feeling of wanting to be simpler or quieter. All of those are fine. Very often, the motivation for us comes from a place of desire. We feel that motivation, and we want, again, to be fulfilled, or to touch love, or to be peaceful. Some, some deep spiritual kind of desire. But even that tends to get tangled in this quality of wanting. Trishna is the word in Sanskrit which is best translated as thirst. <clears throat> thirst for something that will do it, where we'll finally feel loved or complete or whole in some way. And that's the source of the tremendous degree of addiction in our society as well. Let me ask a question that I asked down at this weekend workshop. How many people in this room have either been addicted to drugs or alcohol or some, some strong addiction, or have been in the families of people who are addicts, so that you're really closely affected by that, or in some way very close to someone who has worked with powerful addictions. Please raise your hands. That, isn't that stunning? And painful as well very painful, very often. I mean, the level of suffering from addiction or from being the child of an alcoholic or associated in some way with it, not easy at all. So it's a really powerful force, this desire for something in us. And that is based on a sense of incompletion or emptiness or loneliness or separateness or some limited sense of ourselves. And so we keep looking to eat up the world through our eyes and ears and mouth and whatever we can do. To go beyond that emptiness or that separateness. And it happens in moments. Again, sometimes a near-death experience or an accident or being in the mountains or some beautiful experience of sex or some... Uh, special music, or the birth of a child, or 
just some intimate moment where all of a sudden that melts a little bit. And we say, boy, I really want that. I want that all the time. If only I could have that. And we get lost thinking that it's out there that's going to make it. But actually it's in ourselves. So we undertake a spiritual practice and initially maybe for a long time, our spiritual practice is also motivated by that same gaining, wanting, trying to get something. And with it, by some sense of will. If I do it right, if I do enough practice, if I sit, or if I repeat my sacred prayers, whatever it is, if I, if I really give myself to it, then somehow I'll get it. And some things good can come of that, but eventually, if you feel inside as you do your practice, that doesn't really go all the way. It doesn't really get us there. Because it's still based on, I'm trying to get something out there that's going to fulfill this. And sooner or later, we tend to see in our spiritual life, and in the sense that is in our inner wisdom, wherever it is in our life, that the need is not for our will, and not for overcoming or attaining or getting or, or powering ourselves to some place, but the need is more for a spirit of surrender. And that's really how the heart comes in rather than the will. Not by what we're going to do, but by opening or surrendering. I'm sure you've felt this at times in moments, that really what we seek isn't going to come from grasping, but it's going to come from taking a sabbatical, from taking the day of the week off, the Lord's Day, finally, a day off. This is from Rumi again. He says, when you do things from your soul, from your spirit, you feed a river you feel a river moving in you, a joy. When the actions come from another section, the feeling disappears. Don't let others lead you. They may be blind or worse, vultures. Reach for your heart. And what is that? Putting aside your will, that's what it is. Because of our willfulness, we sit in jail. From willfulness the trapped bird's wings are tied. From willfulness, the fish sizzles in the skillet. The anger of police is willfulness. You've seen the magistrate inflict the punishment. Now listen in yourself. If you could leave willfulness, you would see how your spirit has been tortured. We are born and live inside the dark water of a well. How could we know what an open field of sunlight is? Don't insist on going where you think you want to go. Ask, ask the way to spring. Ask the way to open. Ask your heart, and the pieces will start to open for you. We feel that at different times there's the struggle through life, and then there are those times when you get a sense it's not the struggle that matters, but the opening, the letting go. Now you might say, oh, surrender, that's weakness. 
And you really have to do it. That's strength. But it takes a lot of courage to let go and to open and to surrender. There's a cartoon a couple weeks ago in the New Yorker. Some of you may have seen it. Two generals at the Pentagon strolling down the hall. And one says to the other, Last night I had this awful dream. I dreamed the meek inherited the earth. (laughs) But actually, it takes a lot of courage to open and to let go. What must I do to attain holiness? A traveler asked the master. Follow your heart, he answered. This seemed to please the traveler. So he packed his bags, and as he was leaving, the master said, Come here, and he whispered to him. To follow your heart, you're going to need quite a strong constitution. (laughs) It's not an easy thing. Actually, it's a very difficult thing. How can we connect our practice and our living with our heart? We need to bring consciousness or raise into consciousness, illuminate with our awareness several things. We need to bring awareness to a deeper motivation in our life. We need to become aware of the truth of emptiness, and I'll explain how that connects with the heart in a minute. And we need to bring awareness to the nature of joy and sorrow. These three things. Finding a heartfelt motivation. If we don't have that, if we're not living from some deep motivation in our heart, life gets very difficult and confusing and doesn't mean a lot. Have you noticed those periods where you're not connected in that way? Things don't seem, they don't make sense. So how to do that? One useful way is to periodically reflect on what you value. It's very simple. Remember how often I'll say that at the end of life when people look back, there aren't many questions that we ask when we're about to die. Just a couple maybe. Did I love well? Did I really let myself love the people around me, my family, the community, the earth, whatever it is? Or did I live fully? How did I touch the earth in this incarnation, in this life? So it's to reflect once in a while, what do you care about what most deeply in your life? What do you want to most have done? What would you like to nourish or develop or increase? What in yourself would you like to grow? What in the world would you like to nourish? What has inspired you in some way that you could plant the seeds of or help to awaken? Just that reflection. Remember last week with all the ghost stories, I talked about all those past lives and all those kinds of things. When Tibetan practice is started, traditionally, you reflect on how we've had hundreds of thousands of lifetimes. To become a Buddha, it said it takes 100,000 kalpas. And each kalpa is measured by the distance that bird 
uh, the, by the length of time it takes for that bird with the silk scarf in its beak to wear away the mountain that's seven miles high. And it only goes by the mountain once every hundred years with the scarf. <laughs> and when that wears down, that's one Mahakalpa. So to become a Buddhist says a hundred thousand of those, and then four immensities, which I forget how long they are. <laughs> now, in that way of practice, it's said you can take it metaphorically or you can take it literally as you like. It might be true, you will find out, huh? That in all these rounds of birth and death, of creation and destruction over and over, we have all been everything. We have been each other's mothers and daughters and sons and fathers and sisters and cousins. We've been slaves and we've been slave owners. And that each being that you look at, everybody that you see, was your mother. Imagine that, right? And every being that you look at was your child, was your beloved son or your beloved daughter. And that's the beginning reflection. And then you look at a motivation, all right, well, how do I want to treat all my mothers? and fathers and, and sons and daughters, that we've been doing this for such a long time, what might we want to do with it? Isn't it time, maybe, after all these rounds of every circumstance we could be in, to awaken? Isn't it time to bring that spirit really alive in the earth? That's one way to connect with that motivation is to reflect on what your life means, what you value for all of us and what it would be to live from those values. Another way to discover that is to touch some basic goodness in yourself. You know, usually if we look inside, especially if we've been busy and had difficulties, we see our greed or our fear, our neurosis, our paranoia, our pains. And we think that's who we are. But it's not our true nature. It's not the true nature. It's based on some belief that we're the personality. I hope you're not. I really do. You know? <laughs> or that we're this body. And therefore, our pains or how we look or whatever, how people treat us is really our true nature. And it's not. Now, there's a traditional meditation taught to people when they're dying in Theravada Buddhist tradition to create a skillful mind state for going through change, little change. And the meditation, let's do it for a couple minutes. It's a very simple one. Just sit comfortably, no, no big deal with your posture, but comfortably enough. The meditation is to close your eyes. It doesn't have much to do with death or anything. And it's to reflect on, in this life, let come into your mind the image and the memory of one or two things that you've done that were really good deeds, that you're really happy you have done. What have you done in your life that's really been good, that's expressed the basic goodness of your heart? Just sitting still, let a memory or reflection or two or three of those times that you're really pleased 
you were able to act with that kind of goodness. And see what feelings arise with it. How does that feel in you? What state of consciousness arises together with that? Sense of completion or joy or well-being. Let your eyes open again. Let's just see a few of what people found in there. Anybody want to... I know it's hard to say good things about yourself, right? If I asked for rotten things, everyone's hand would go up. Anyone want to say what they saw? Please. Come on. Don't be shy. Please. And say as loud as you can also, so...
God himself anything. He believes in mathematics, Pythagoras, that's it. And I heard myself telling this person to whom I've been married for over 10 years, opening up my soul to this person. And he just, that, and, and I expected the usual, oh, that's a lot of BS, that's a lot of whatever. And he turned to me and he said, that's beautiful. Hmm. And so I got to the house and uh, Kevin was cowering in one of the rooms and I said, go and get Kevin. And I spoke to Kevin. And Kevin was 11, <laughs> knelt down and he put his arms around me and he said, I, I understand that I feel the same way. And then it was just that one moment of realization had I died then, and I could have, I mean it was that bad. I, I would have had to go through this space of time with this thing, and now my halo is so heavy I can't see it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Somebody else, please. Oh, Evelyn. Evelyn's transcribed about 500 Dharma talks of Joseph's and mine and various Asian teachers, it's the basis of a number of books that have been published or being worked on. And it's really, I'm very grateful. It's wonderful. Anybody else? One more? Carol? Oh, what, what came to me immediately was something that happened today when I was with a friend and we began, for some reason it just started coming out. But a lot of my experiences in teaching in high school in New York City and exchanges with students and uh, how rich they were and how much they meant to me and how touching they were and, and the richness that's made in my life. And I, feel, I feel very grateful for that. Experiences in teaching in New York City and just being able to be there for some of those kids. <coughs> In the, in the workshop this weekend, the people raised their hand and again said some of the simplest things like that. Someone who was a nurse in an emergency room said that we get babies that come in that die from sudden infant death syndrome. And what I do, she said, is after I clean them, I hold them for a while, even after they've died. She said, it doesn't seem important, but somehow I'm so glad that I do it. Or somebody else was the manager of a store and this young boy who had worked there came in to visit a computer store and went in the back and stole $5,000 worth of stuff. And instead of calling the police, he went to this kid's house and he sat and talked with him and after confronting him and talking with him, the kid not only apologized but he began to weep and he talked about his difficulties and gave the stuff back, and told his parents and wrote a whole long letter of apology to everyone in the store who had known him and really made some restitution um, and changed his life very much for the better. 
And this man said, if, if that's the only thing I'd done was just to go and see that 17-year-old kid instead of just calling the police, I feel like that year was worth it in my life. What's interesting is that when we look for those things in our life where we felt the most connected to our goodness in our heart, in general, they're very simple. Is that true for you, what you saw? When you were there for some other person, somebody raised their hand and said, I was really good with my kids when they were teenagers, she said, and I feel so good that I did that. <laughs> Not so easy. <laughs> but simple things, the things that make our life really mean a lot, are that simple. How we are there for another person with our heart in a certain moment. And that's what makes the, the shining light that comes from the eyes of Mother Teresa or that beautiful smile on the Buddha, you know, or the, that big smile of Meher Baba, don't worry, be happy. Of course, it's the song now, but whatever, <laughs> you know. It's just seeing that that's really what we want and seek. So part of connecting our practice to our heart is to bring into awareness what we really want with our life and to remember that we can do it how we've done it and to connect with that place in ourselves. Then to study emptiness as a second part. Without it, you can't really understand the heart. You just keep trying to fill it up. If you don't look at, at emptiness and longing, there's no way to come to the bottom of it. There's this book that's been published by a person who sits, Vipassana, um, who works with eating disorders, entitled Feeding the Hungry Heart. And it's very good work. And it's really the work of looking at what we do all the time through our wanting and our desire to feed something that has very little to do with our bellies. I talk sometimes about Kalu Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama, old master in his 80s who says, I use his quote very often, that when you discover your true nature you'll see that you are nothing and being nothing you are everything. Remember that? Lots of other talks. Well, Kalu had a student, who, a woman in Canada, who was a nun with him, a Westerner, for a while in India and then went back to live with her family and go to graduate school and work in a city in Toronto, and had all the difficult times that anyone who's ever been in an ashram and then tried to go back and live a normal life in a city does, and more. And she wrote and she said, the only thing that gets me through all these difficulties is that I keep you in my heart. I have your picture over my altar and I remember you, and I keep you in my heart. And he wrote her a letter back of just one line, and it said, the nature of the heart is emptiness. Stay with that. I mean, that was beautiful and very devotional. And it was like the letter was saying to her, I guess because he believed she could do it, go deeper than that. It's not just that I'm there and you can think of me and have some good feeling. When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you're looking into space 
What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you look deeply, you won't find anything tangible or solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or you've fallen possessively in love. But that's not the awakened heart. If you search for the opened heart, the awakened one, you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It's pure raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. This is the experience of the awakening of the tender heart of sadness. And from it, and only from this, do you understand the fearlessness that can come in the path of the warrior. This is Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. To study emptiness means to accept without resisting, to not push away or not distract ourselves from the emptiness that's within us, that we kind of half feel and keep trying to fill up through all our sense of longing and deficiency. Instead, it's to sit and say, all right, let me feel that longing, that emptiness, that space, that deficiency. Let me feel how deep it is how big it is, and not just try to fill it right away. Not so easy to do, is it? It's to stop running away. And to do that, and to feel that, then something new comes alive in us. It's difficult. I said to this wanting creature in me, says to Kabir, What is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road. No river at all, no boat, no boatman. No body and no mind. Do you believe that there is some place that you can go that will make your soul less thirsty? In that great absence you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says, just this, my friend. Throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are now. Just to stay where we are and to face that. Now, how do you do that? How do you open to that emptiness of being or heart instead of trying to fill it? When you sit, there are a number of ways. You can watch and be aware of your moods and your ideas and your thoughts. And if you sit still enough, you start to see how they come and go like clouds. We tend to get caught up in each one and identified with this and like that. Just let yourself take enough time in life to see the mind, its real nature. It moves and it creates images and plans and ideas and thoughts. And find a place of stillness that sees all that without reacting to it. If you want to really study it carefully, 
Notice the beginning and endings of things. Notice the beginning of thoughts and their end. The beginning of feeling, sadness, then happiness or joy, feeling in love, feeling bored. See how they first arise. See what it feels like as they pass away. And then all of a sudden you start to see, oh, it's all just doing that. It comes for a little while like a cloud does on a mountain and then (coughs) dissolves and then the next thing comes. All in the heart. Study your body. Feel the space between your breaths. The breath comes in, little pause goes out, big space. Next breath comes in, little pause goes out, space. Can you be with that space? Feel the space as you sit in your physical body in other ways. Feel the emptiness of your belly, the emptiness of your heart. The space inside your head, it's there if the thoughts quiet down, otherwise it's pretty full. But when the thoughts quiet, you actually feel space in there. Or use your attention to any place that feels solid. If you pay attention enough, it's like an electron microscope, and you go in and in paying attention really deeply, and whatever seems solid all of a sudden turns into molecules and atoms and electrons, and then, ooh, it's just moving vibrations if you feel deeply enough. You can do it with feelings, with thoughts, with sensations. Begin to see how stuff comes out of nothing for a little while and goes away. And that that's what the heart is. It's the place that receives that, out of which it comes and disappears. This week is my 25th high school class reunion on the East Coast. And I I wish I could go, but I have a retreat to teach next week, starting in Santa Sabina, and just too many things going on. But I've been talking to old classmates and thinking about who I might meet there and stuff, and thinking, 25 years, God, where did that go? You know what I mean? (laughs) This is the emptiness I'm talking about. What happened to your childhood or your college years or your adolescence? or whatever it was, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s almost, huh? (laughs) Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream. It's really to see how stuff is here for a little bit and it just disappears. How about your opinions? Try those. (laughs) Praise and blame. We get praised for a little while, then we get blamed, then we get praised again. It's so ephemeral. You know the story of Mullah Nasruddin? He had this professor who wanted to come and talk to him about philosophy. They made an appointment. He came came to Nasruddin's house, and Nasruddin wasn't there, and he was really angry. So he wrote on the doorpost, picked up a piece of chalk, and he wrote, stupid fool on it. Well, Nasruddin ran into him, um, came home, and he saw that there, and he remembered, oh, my heavens, um, I forgot my appointment with the professor. And he went out to look for him, and he ran into them in the tea shop in the marketplace. And the professor says, I, um, uh, you forgot my appointment. And Nasruddin says, yes, I did, but I remembered it as soon as I saw that you'd left your name on my gate. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
but isn't that how it is? One day somebody says you're terrific, and another day they say you're awful, and we take it personally and create the solidity of our being and our heart from that. <coughs> Studying emptiness. Seeing all the stuff, just the stuff. There's this funny dance, and I must say that I wrestle with it, and it's difficult. It was hard this last weekend for me, of seeing the emptiness and knowing that even the really painful stories are just more stuff on one side, and on the other, really wanting to be there with my heart and feel it fully. That kind of dialogue between the two parts. And if I feel too much of the emptiness, then it feels strange. It feels like I'm not really there in myself or for that person. But if I feel the compassion and the feelings, but I don't also have that perspective that everybody goes through their sorrows, it, it all arises and d- decays, then I get lost in it. And what allows for those to come together is that space of emptiness of the heart that can feel and also be aware of the change of life. The third thing, understanding and feeling, experiencing in the body, in the mind, in the heart, this sense of space within which things happen, the emptiness of them, that we don't possess them. Touching our deeper motivation for life. And then the last of these three is practicing directly with the joys and sorrows. The key to Buddhist teaching, as I've said, is that it's practice. That's why it's called meditation practice. How how does one do that? Well, the first thing is simply to become aware of the 10,000 joys and sorrows. Really, if you want to do an exercise for the week, there are a couple I'll give you. One might be just to see in the course of your days how many pleasant and unpleasant things there are that arise. The unpleasant ones, you hear of someone dying, the change in the elections, disappointment, loss, fear, pain, sadness, paranoia, robbery, all kinds of things. So you feel the 10,000 sorrows. Maybe make a day where you just feel the sorrows of it. Then another day, the joys. Look at the trees. Listen to the birds. Be aware of how beautiful it is to take a breath or drink a glass of clear water. Go out with a kid somewhere and just look through their eyes. When Caroline was little, was littler, my daughter was just one and two years old, I used to take her out in the yard and introduce her to things because she hadn't seen them in this incarnation. I'd say, this is a tree, this is an oak tree. You can touch its bark, she'd rub her little hand. I'd, talk about oak trees, and I said, now here's a, here's a plum tree. When you're a little bigger, you can eat the plums from this. And she would look at it, and she was really interested. And it was wondrous and wonderful, because she'd never seen a plum tree before, at least in this, in this life, in this way. There are these incredible things of, of our life, just to look in another person's eyes, just to walk by the ocean and see the waves just to be able to eat something delicious. So becoming aware of all the joys and all the sorrows. That's a way to keep one's heart and practice connected. Another 
is to d- discover through taking the time to be still some natural place of caring. I believe in all of us that our fundamental nature is, is of love, is of caring. But we get so busy or so caught up or so afraid, maybe that's what it is, that we lose touch with that. It's called our Buddha nature. And if you really start to discover and investigate in the heart, you'll find places of pain and places of sorrow and loss and lack of forgiveness. And when I felt in there, I've also gotten different color lights, green and yellow and luminous blue and things made out of silver and wonderful things and ice cubes and, and ice picks and all kinds of stuff if you really explore the layers of what the heart has. This is literal, by the way. I'm not speaking metaphorically. But as you begin to experience and let the heart be still, you feel all these different things that open. There's some ground of peace or well-being, contentment, you could call it, love. I don't know what you want to call it. That's the truth of our nature in spite of all the changes. And that's a reason that we sit, is to come back to that place. You might say, well, how could I know that goodness, that place? You know it already. You know it because it's true. And when you just get still a little bit, you feel it. And then from that place... You can work with the capacity of the heart again to open to the joys and sorrows. Work with pain. Feel the physical pain in your body and see if you can learn to touch it with softness rather than aggression or fear. Work with the sorrows of your heart. See if you can let them in and touch them with compassion. Practice. just takes practice. Sit with your heart in the middle of that and let whatever wants to come, even the great difficulties, come into your heart and see if you can receive them with kindness. There is a greatness that waits in every one of us. This is Martin Luther King. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And there is a film, a wonderful film of his life. And right after the bombings in, in uh, Alabama, where he stands up at one point with his congregation, and he says, we may not be educated, and we may not have a lot of understanding of some things. We may not have much to give in the struggle, but we have the capacity to suffer and the capacity to die. And he said, if you understand that capacity and you bring that to this which you love, it will triumph in the end. That was an extraordinary speech. 
didn't ask anything very complicated. You can cultivate that. You can practice loving kindness. First you do it for people you love and for your own heart and body and the children and the people in your community. Then pick the guys that are difficult or the gals, you know. Do your loving kindness for the South African government if they're one of your bad guys. Do it for the Contras or the Nicaraguan, whoever. It doesn't matter. Pick both sides. Do it for drug dealers. Do it for pirates. Then try it tomorrow night. <laughs> we were practicing this retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. I've talked about this at other times, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh. And he asked us to please write meditation poems for each thing that we do during the day. I wash the dishes and touch the cleanness of the water and I remind myself of the purity of the heart and the intrinsic beauty of all the world. Or a meditation for getting in the car, just a four-line poem. I open the door, the car becomes a part of me. I drive as if I am the Buddha in traffic. <laughs> And then he said, all right, you've written some of those easy ones. Now please write me a poem for watching Ronald Reagan on television. <laughs> I turn on the television, President Reagan appears, and then two more verses. Someone actually yesterday wrote me a verse for, for uh, tomorrow night. He said, turning on the TV on election night, I pay attention with clear vision to whatever comes about, that all beings may pay attention to our sub planet surrounded in swirling clouds. My attention brings the attention of all beings. Write yourself a poem for tomorrow night, turning on the election news. Go ahead, bring them in next week, please. So you start with the things that you love and you feel that joy and that goodness in your being. And then you go to the ones that are difficult and you let those in your heart. Because they need it, I tell you. That's what makes it so painful. And finally you get to the place where you see that the difficulties themselves are the path. That the election is your practice. That the environment and the difficulties in it is our practice. And it's to teach us something. Maybe just to love more fully and more carefully. It's all made of the same thing, which is you. The conditions always change. Anybody notice that? Every kind of conditions, good conditions, bad conditions. Fear arises, difficulties come, always. Now what you can learn from this is, oh, here's a good place to practice. Oh, here's really a juicy one to practice. As one Zen master said, practice is one continuous mistake. Or life is one continuous mistake, a big mistake. You make one mistake after another, which means that you learn from it. That's what education is. And when you get afraid or things are difficult, fear is simply the signal that you're about to learn something new. When you feel afraid, it's like the little light comes on and it says, about to grow, right? <laughs> 
That's all it is. Oh, wait a second. I'm not sure I want to grow in that direction. That's all right. About to grow. <sighs> Take a breath. I was wronged. They wronged him. She wronged me. I was left. All those kinds of thoughts, they come. All right, let's see if that, too, can be the place of our awakening. And there's this wonderful poem I'll bring in some night from a, a Tibetan lama, a great Tibetan teacher who was 10 years in a Chinese prison, and he smuggled this out to his teacher. And it was, and it was a very coarse, difficult prison. Um, he eventually died there. But after 10 years of being beaten and very bad food and whatever, he wrote a letter out saying, I am so grateful to pre be provided with this 10-year retreat. And not only that, in my retreat, those who are keeping me give me the greatest and most exquisite opportunities to practice the perfections of a Buddha. Nowhere have I ever been able to practice in such an intensive and deep way. And so I bow with gratitude to those who keep me here. Where is the Buddha in the next moment, in the next difficulty, in this community, in your life, in your family, in the election, in the environment? How do we find the Buddha in this moment, in this situation, and enter it with the heart of compassion? Breathe in sweet air, breathe out sorrow. Breathe in present time, breathe out tomorrow. It's a poem for working with the breath. One more. This is for waking up. Waking up, strolling softly from the deep, dark land of night, the best news comes not from the TV, but from the news sent by my toes. We are alive down here and well. <laughs> Traffic reports are lost as the mind begins to signal no gridlock today. One five billionth of the human species is awake. You feel feet pattering across the floor, each cell smiling at the wakefulness. Oh boy, another day. I talked a long time tonight. Sometimes I do. What can you do? I want to ask, not for questions, but I'd like to ask anybody else who would like to share something good that came in that little meditation that they've done that they're really pleased with. Anyone? Just being there with your mother. Beautiful. Being foster parent for a uh, 14 year old redheaded, freckle faced boy that challenged me, but it was a really positive. Beautiful. You know, when I did that reflection and I thought about something that I'd done well, I thought about a particular person I had for a client who I work with in therapy. And he was a man who was in his 50s, and he was pretty bright, but he was quite depressed and unhappy. He'd had a difficult childhood and never got married and was kind of lonely. And 
basically he didn't feel very good about himself. He hated himself in many ways. And he came to see me for a couple of years, and we worked, we did some sand play and meditation together and things, and he would always tell me about the bad things that he did and how he didn't feel good about himself and the struggles he got into. And for some reason, I just really liked this guy a lot. I thought he was terrific. And he was sort of this dowdy old guy who would come in. And he would come in and he would tell me this stuff, and I'd just look at him and say, you know, I think you're great. I really think you're wonderful. That stuff, that doesn't matter. And he would tell me something else, and I would just say, I really think you're great. And I meant it. I really loved him a lot. And he came for a couple of years, and then it ended, and he went off to do some other things and some other therapy. He didn't even change his life very much. I had thoughts maybe he would make some changes. But it really didn't matter. I, I've just felt, when I, when I brought him to mind, I felt so pleased that I was simply there and that I loved him for a couple of years when we were together. It's just that simple. Anybody else? I had a friend. Um, I didn't really know her very long, but we connected very strongly. And she developed lung cancer and finally went into the hospital. And I remember one day, it was on a Friday, I said, I'm going to go to the body shop and buy some lotion and go to the hospital massage her. So I did that, and I brought this peach-smelling, which she loved, lotion. And I stood behind her, and I massaged her shoulders. And she turned up and looked at me, and she said, I love you. Mm. And she died two days The way he wanted to do it. Beautiful. And you know, a lot of it comes. I'm thanking you, Jack. Thank you. You know, I went to be with my father when he was in the hospital. He had a really bad heart attack, and they gave him a 10% chance to live. And he was in an ICU for, for almost two months. Kidney failure and um, pulmonary problems and. Um, all kinds of stuff. And when he was near to where I thought he was dying, turns out that he didn't. But I went to him. He's not someone who likes to talk about feelings. And I said, you know, um, he was all got all those tubes in there, so he couldn't talk, but he, ha he could listen. And I said, I just want to tell you, 
You know, I reflected a little about my childhood and family life, talked about that. And I said, I, you know, we don't talk about this, but I really love you a lot and whatever. And I finished talking about all that, and he kind of turned over. He was mostly conscious, a little bit out of it. He looked out at me out of the corner of his eye, and he picked his hand up and he held his nose like, ugh. <laughs> he did not want to hear it. It was a great moment, it was. (laughs) Anyway, a couple of announcements and then we'll finish tonight. We'll sit for just one minute. Um, On the back table are inquiring minds that give a list of upcoming, some upcoming retreats and events, uh, other brochures for some uh, events for Spirit Rock, including a day of relationship to the earth, and uh, a workshop on relationships, uh, intimate relationships as practice. There's a basket there for donations, the tradition being for the last 2,500 years that teachings be given as freely as possible. And we really want to keep that alive in this country, just like you can go to Asia and be fed and taken care of and clothed and taught in a monastery. So there's no charge for the class. But at the same time, what keeps it alive is that people who value spiritual life build monasteries and support teachers. So your support is, is really welcome and, and useful. Um, there's a place for mailing lists back there. Uh, and there's someone who wanted to make an announcement about foster home. Would you please? <laughs> 